Hey there, we're Slingshot, a machine learning platform for developers, and we'll be talking through questions machine learning developers and folks in our team are asking. Today, we're going to be talking about how AI companies make product decisions and how we make product decisions here at Slingshot. There's still a lot that we're figuring out, so feel free to join the conversation and let us know what you think. So, uh, Edwin, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Edwin. I'm one of the founding engineers here at Slingshot. So I've been here since the first day that our phylogenetic joined. Just me, Daniel, and uh, Guy. It's been a really, really fun learning experience of going through the process of building from zero to one. Um, we've had to go through a lot of different phases of how we make product decisions here and build out new features, starting from just going off intuition, building first, like, first couple of features, getting them ready for users, and then iterating on those. Now we have live customers and we're trying to also incorporate more customer feedback, start building out our enterprise sales loops and also collect data from real world usage of our products. And those are all like super important things that inform how we, we build Slingshot now. And then the kind of fourth pillar that we're trying to build off of is design, being more design focused as a company and trying to build features that are paradigm shifts in how users might interact with machine learning tooling. Beautifully said. At Slingshot, we, we really value velocity, and we understand that velocity is the product of two elements, speed and direction. So I think speed is a whole discussion in and of itself. I think we're pretty fast-paced. I think every startup kind of has to be really fast-paced to be able to iterate quickly enough. Uh, but the other side to that is direction. How do you decide what to build? We have four pillars of direction. We have four pillars that influence our direction on any given product decision which are uh, engineering, customer-driven, data-driven, and design. Let's go through each one of those. So um, can you talk about what it would mean when we make an engineering-driven decision? Yeah, so I think when we try to make an engineering-driven decision, what we start with is like looking at what's feasible on the technical side and maybe even looking to like what's the coolest thing that's possible with tech and trying to build around that. Um, the other things to note with engineering is that we, we like to pick off a lot of low-hanging fruit or like implement features based on practicality on the engineering side. So that means like putting as little work into something as possible to like get the maximum result, which often let, lets us like build features much faster than we would otherwise, um, but also could introduce tech debt or bias us towards making smaller incremental changes that aren't uh, fundamentally affecting the product. So if you're uh, when we talk about like engineering driven decisions, I think that's like about low hanging fruit, right? So you go to the engineering team and you're kind of like, I don't know how hard this would be. Can you just like give me a sense of how hard it would be? And then if engineering drives a lot of the decision, that probably means that we built it because we thought this is the right technical design or this isn't going to be so hard. Um, and so the impact might be worth it because of how hard it is. If you're a machine learning company, what would be an example of taking an engineering driven approach to building a new product? Yeah, I think one example might be to kind of, if you're a new startup building machine learning applications, there might be new tech that, especially in machine learning, because things evolve so quickly, like you might have a new ML model architecture that's just been released and you want to build around that and try to build a product that's able to be sold to real customers. So like chatbots, basically. Yeah, so like ChatGPT might be a great example of this where it, like opening, I found that building like incredibly large language model could turn into like the super useful consumer facing product 
and it unlocked like a whole new paradigm shift of how like, users might interact with knowledge on the internet. And then you get engineers at every company on earth saying, we need to build a chatbot. And uh, the company is like, yeah, well, we need an AI strategy. We might as well build a chatbot because like chatbots are possible now. And so an engineer is like, hey, I can build a chatbot. Chatbots are feasible now. And so, you know, in a fully, I think basically when we see all the chatbots where like any random company is like, we're an AI company now because our homepage has a chatbot. So you don't have to talk to customer support. And that chatbot is really just ChatGPT. We, we are probably looking at like an engineering driven decision, right? It doesn't really make sense for any customers. There's not really a use case for it, but an engineer looks at it and says, this is low hanging fruit. This would be easy to build. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. You know, OpenAI provides like such an easy API to like access and it's like super easy to just get that paradigm shift uh, unlocked through right away. I think especially in like Silicon Valley, following the .ai companies, I think a lot of the hype cycle just comes down to probably those engineering driven decisions. Like, especially for us, we, we worry about this a lot because we have a really strong, we have, honestly, we have a really strong engineering team. And uh, that, that means that we're often talking about tech debt and we have to be aware, hey, if we're making an engineering driven decision here, there's a good chance that we're going to bias towards tech debt, that we're going to, you know, make everything faster, better, cheaper, but maybe without any actual impact on the end user. Yeah, and I think it like means a lot into like the fast break things saying well, Silicon Valley like, loves to propagate. There are a lot of downsides to this, obviously, as well. So, for example, you're not considering a lot of potential user-facing issues with implementing things quickly, or you might be too focused on the engineering side, and as a result, you're you focus too much on like fixing tech debt or like using the newest tools and languages. So let's let's jump into the customer driven side here because I think we're getting into it. So customer driven, that's uh, what that's where you like ask your customers what they want and build that. Yeah. So I think the the start of like the the sales funnel will be kind of trying to conduct like some sort of um, yeah. You you conduct. You talk about conducting user interviews and try to get feedback on what a user like might want inside of a platform. Um, the downside is like customers might not know what they want and we have to like figure that out for them. But at the end of the day, like it's um, figuring out like what customers want to pay for and like what is actually valuable to customers. And I think we've definitely, you know, there's obviously you need to be customer obsessed when you're building a startup, but there are definitely pitfalls that I think we've definitely fallen into where talk to a customer. And I think like, especially in ML, the biggest complaint you'll get when someone says like, you know, what's hard for us is like, uh, it's hard to deploy. And uh, it's virtually always like, oh, we're trying to deploy faster. And uh, at the face of it, I think what customers think they want, I think they're talking about is like the actual deployment process, uh, which is hard. Like, don't get me wrong, like serverless deployment is really hard. But usually there's something there's something deeper there where maybe they're saying like our experiments haven't been going well and we have someone, maybe maybe you're talking to the engineer on the team and they're like, I just want to deploy and I can't. And what they're really saying is like, my team won't let me because they don't trust that this model works. And so I think the pitfall, if you're you know, too customer driven uh, or you know, poorly customer driven, if you're just saying like customers gave me feedback, customers said they want to deploy faster, you, know, you can just keep getting faster and faster and faster at deployment, whatever that means, without really addressing the underlying, like what are customers complaining about? What's wrong in their process that's making deployment so slow? Yeah, so I think that's like a good segue into like being data driven actually, because like we're now we're looking at, let's say you're a machine learning company and you're looking for like feedback on like what you want to build for your models. You need some, some way to like gather feedback as well from, from usage. And that's where like being data driven comes in, being able to like evaluate those deployments, for example. From what I understand when you were at Quora, 
you were very data-driven, right? When you were making decisions. Yeah, so Quora kind of, Quora's engineering was entirely driven by A-B testing results. Um, so almost like every feature change would kind of go through the cycle of A-B testing where you would have like a set of metrics that you wanted to evaluate against. You would put that as your hypothesis and make sure that it moves in the positive or the direction that you're expecting. And if that was true after a certain amount of time, a week or two, then you'd be able to ship it. And this is like, uh, it's like a really easy way to get incremental changes shipped to the product fast and like validate that they're, they're correct. The pitfall of this is that it's like, you're kind of constrained to incremental changes or it's like, it's a lot harder to ship bigger like paradigm shifting changes because you're, you're biased towards like all of these like super measurable aspects uh, of the product in terms of usage. And you're also biasing towards like something that can fit in an A-B test, right? You can't, you can't A-B test something massive. If you're like, Hey, let's change Quora completely in terms of how it works. No one's going to approve that as an A-B test. And, um, I think the other hard part with being data driven, obviously you need to be data driven, right? Whether you're engin- if you're if you're engineering driven and data driven, that means that when an engineer says, let's make our loading page faster, you know, you say, okay, cool, how much faster do you think you can make it? Are we talking one percent, five percent, ten percent, a hundred percent, two X, ten X? You know, what are these numbers? But the other thing worth mentioning yeah, is, is there is a huge bias towards what you can measure. So maybe if it was a Quora, if you're dealing with like ads, maybe you're trying to measure the click-through rate. And that means that certain optimizations might really help with the click-through rate. And it turns out maybe that that's not actually the right thing to measure. Maybe it is. But in a lot of cases, you might bias towards things that are easily measurable. So it might be that you create a chatbot, for example, and then your measurement is like how many people use the chatbot and then don't contact customer service or something or whatever the metrics might be. It might be that people are just trying out the chatbot because of the hype, for example. And it might be, therefore, that your metric isn't capturing something underlying meaningful. It also might be that for yeah for those paradigm shifts, it'll just take too long to collect data. Yeah, so like it it becomes really hard to build out like the correct metrics for any new feature that you're adding. And it also becomes like really hard to or there's a there's a mental blocker there in terms of like I now need to build out an A/B test and the feature in order to still get this approved and shipped. And so maybe I just shouldn't bother with it. Exactly. Although to be clear, yeah, obviously data is important and it, it doesn't have to be. I think a lot of times like data is thought around like large data stuff, but it could just be like, oh, we have customer requests. How many customer requests? Or it could be that you're data driven in customer stuff by saying, let's measure the unit of value to customers, right? Like maybe we're underestimating a certain feature request because we didn't think in a data driven way. It doesn't matter that it was only three customers. The actual value to those customers is huge. The TAM there is huge. That's totally worth doing. And so data could just be a way of reshifting other stuff. So, so we've talked about being end-driven, customer-driven, and data-driven. I think the last thing to talk about, we have a ton of respect for data-driven startups. Do you want to talk about some of the design-driven startups that you respect? Yeah, I think there's a lot of like really um, interesting startups that have emerged recently just related to like AI and in other like kind of general schooling, one of them would be like the browser company that makes Spark. By the way, Edwin got all of us on the team using Arc, just FYI. Because Arc is a wonderful browser. Arc is kind of marketed as like uh, this new paradigm of using a browser where you have essentially an entire operating system within your browser and you have like a panel of apps that are just websites that are loaded and stored nicely into memory so you can access them quickly a lot of nice features that generally aren't available at the browser level, but more at the like OS level. So for example, like having a split plane view of, of your tabs, 
or be able to like pin tabs, uh, bookmark the auto deletes tabs that haven't been used in a while as well to keep your browser clean. So all of these are like incremental changes on top of a browser that really make it feel a lot smoother for me. I'm not even sure I'd call it incremental. I think like it's funny because Arc can be really slow sometimes and yet people use it so much anyway. I use it and like I get annoyed sometimes when it's slow and has other kinds of bugs. But like you can really feel like you're part of the journey of Arc to reinvent from first principles what a browser really should look like. I think they sort of went off this idea that Chrome just was an incremental improvement on browsers. And browsers have come such a long way, they do something so different. But the fact that so many people have 30 plus tabs open means that browsers are just designed wrong. And even if they haven't gotten it right, they ideate from first principles, they experiment, they try out you know, totally different approaches. They've also gone back sometimes where they say, hey, we went too far, we tried out this experiment, we launched it, people don't like it. Let's take it back, we made a mistake, but it's okay because we're gonna try something else. And I think, uh, the fact that they're design-driven makes you really want to be part of their journey. And it also means that they can be massive, right? Because they can just completely create a new product category out of the browser. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It like makes you feel special to be using a browser that's different from everyone else in a sense. And they have also great marketing surrounding that. And their marketing is all about being design-driven, right? Like yeah. It's all about, if you complain to us, like we, we care. But we're not going to like just build what you tell us in the sense of like, you know, if if you say be more Chrome like because I like Chrome, like well, shut up. Like good good to know, but like what in particular is bothering you? Because chances are there's maybe like a way more interesting solution. Like you know, with Chrome, big complaint. I have so many tabs open, and then Arc is just like, well, what if we just close your tabs after 24 hours? No one's asking for that. Like that is a great way to piss off users in some ways, and they've created features to like make sure you can get them back and whatever. But it's, it's kind of a funny one because it seems like from a data-driven perspective, you can never A-B test that. Customers would never ask for that. Engineers, you know, would never really suggest that. But maybe a designer is like, well, I talked to a lot of people and I don't think they really need their tabs that are open. So maybe if we just close them for them, we can give other kind of paradigms for people to keep stuff open when they actually want it to be open deliberately rather than just accidentally leaving a tab of the restaurant menu from three weeks ago. Yeah, I think Arc has like a, a, also like a really well thought out product design process and they're also like very transparent about how they build new features they, they make youtube videos of like prototypes of their features that they haven't shipped yet and kind of ask like users like what they think about that as well which i think is, is really cool it's also like leaning a lot into that customer side of things in the data-driven way as well yeah because they can get that design feedback from users yeah but so. it's it's like they're getting design feedback right they're not just saying like what are you asking for they're like here we have an idea we have a prototype what do you think and i think that's also just a massively powerful thing when you go to a user and before everything is perfect, just say like, hey, users, here's an idea. Here's what we think might be cool. I know you didn't ask for it, but we think it's going to solve a lot of your problems. What do you think? Because you've been complaining about things in this direction. And I think that's a lot of the design-driven process. Just like go to users, like the customer-driven side is like go to users early. Go to users before things are ready and see if this solves their problem. And if not, you know, move on, go to the drawing board, figure out how you actually solve their problem. Focus on, on those problems and new paradigms. Obviously, the downside is that it can be slow and inefficient if you have to go back to the drawing board constantly. Yeah. But going through these iteration loops more quickly goes a long way. And I think we're talking about there, there are quite a few generational products that really went back to the drawing board, focused on design. I mean, probably yeah, Apple. Apple is, is the biggest example. Apple's like the biggest example here, yeah. And then Figma, 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of like newer tools out there that are using AI as well. So like Warp, for example, is reinventing the trying to reinvent the terminal, which a lot of us use at Slingshot as well. We love Warp. And Warp is kind of trying to design the terminal again in a like design first principles way. Yeah. And they've done a great job at simplifying the terminal down, adding AI in places that are appropriate for like predicting terminal commands. Also like Descript. Descript, yeah. Trying to reinvent iMovie and say, what if what if editing videos and editing audio was like centered around the script? Like that's awesome. It's just like one huge first principles claim. Like when you edit, the script matters. And then they're like, all right, what follows from that? And yeah, we're going to lose a bunch of features early on that you really asked for, that you really wanted. Yeah. But don't worry. Yeah, same thing with like Runway as a video editor on the web. I think they, they started with like, I tried them like a couple of years ago. They had no, it was very hard to work with like large video files, but they, they really had like the design for thinking of like, okay, we're going to get this working for like smaller videos. Yeah. So like collaborate on video editing. Notion fits here, right? Notion's like, it makes no sense. They were all over the place. Let's figure out. And I think Notion messed up a lot in the early days. Like there, it was really annoying to edit text on Notion. And, uh, but they were, they had, essentially every user thought of themselves as a design partner. And I think that's a lot of what happens with these design-driven companies that uh, I was like this with Ashby. I felt like in the early days, big fan of Ashby as an alternative to Greenhouse and Lever because yeah, they also were like, we're not perfect, but we we do a lot and uh, we're trying to create the right experience for recruiting. And when you have design-driven companies, I think when it's done well, it becomes a community because people want to be part of that process of designing. Yeah. And it really goes back to like being customer-driven there as well because you have to constantly communicate. And I think, I think being honest, we have a long way to go here. But I think uh, at least we have these companies that we're looking up to. You know, we're moving in this direction and we, we want more people joining the, the design process that are helping us design our product by using it and by uh, telling us what they think of our new ideas, our new features. Uh, what are some of the initiatives that we're really trying to design from first principles? Uh, I think one of the things that we really want to push for is like interactively developing machine learning and also like collaboratively working on machine learning. Um, so we're trying to like think about what features, what how to like enable that with the current set of tools that we have, um, whether it's like real-time collaboration on a Jupyter notebook or syncing code. Yeah. I think we have realized that obviously machine learning development is just a completely different thing than software engineering. And with software engineering, it took a long time, but we do now have collaboration. It's funny, like early days of software development, you'd have like FTP as your protocol and you'd push to a, a server, which means that you basically can't have two people developing at once. Like it, it just sucked. You'd have to be like, I'm working on this, you work on that. And of course, Git emerged, you have GitLab, you have GitHub, and you have a lot of collaboration flows uh, we do a ton of pair programming here at Slingshot. So we use, you know, we use our IDEs for that a lot. We also use Slack huddles, which really in some ways is just a great tool for ML, for software collaboration. Yeah. Um, for machine learning, we, we spent some time going back to first principles because when you talk to customers and ask users, what would you want from collaboration? A lot of the time, you know, you're talking to someone that can't collaborate and they're really struggling with it and they talk to their team once a week to catch up on what's new. Everyone's doing their own project. And they don't necessarily see this as a blocker, but it very likely is. Right. So we, we've noticed uh, a couple things. I think we've noticed that people sometimes pair on a single component, like a training script, most commonly with pair programming, which is really hard in machine learning. Maybe you do like PyCharm IDE sharing, 
but it's still like imperfect because while you're developing, you still probably want to be connected to a GPU instance. So being connected to a GPU instance while also having your full IDE and having Git versioning while pair programming, it just, it doesn't really exist now. And then there's parallelized developments of components on a single use case. Like if I'm working on the training script and you're working on evaluation and someone else is working on the inference script for a single use case, how exactly do we collaborate? How do we guarantee that we're going to have the same API? How do I quickly hand over to you my artifacts for my next training runs so that you can continue for evaluation? I think a lot of companies, was this your experience at Quora? You might use just an opinionated approach on top of S3. And that, that might be enough. You just say, look in a certain folder, look in a certain file structure, and that's how you'll know where to find my stuff. And maybe that's enough, but you know, smaller companies still have, are, are figuring that out. Yeah, and it takes a lot of engineering time to like build all that in-house, for even for a small startup. Square was a, not a small startup in terms of users, but it was only 100 engineers, and there was a lot of strain on the resources just to manage all that um, and figure out how to collaborate internally as well. Um, I think as a result, like, in general, ML engineers don't collaborate very much either. Yeah. Because it's just hard to collaborate on these types of projects. And we want to think about how we can actually enable that and make it like frictionless as a process. Yeah. We also we hear a lot about challenges with reusing code tooling across use cases. So you might have like a, a company where, you know, in a team of five ML engineers, there are five separate tools that do the same thing. Maybe it's like smart batching or something like that. And everyone thought it was a good idea and everyone rebuilt it and everyone, you know, built it in their completely different ways and just can't share it. And then, you know, maybe there a lot of that code's living in a Jupyter notebook, which means that when one of them leaves and another one joins, they just build another one and throw away the code from before. Same thing for like data set features, right? A lot of platforms are focused on the feature side, but how do you collaborate when it comes to features? That's a huge challenge, especially when the features might involve multiple personas. There might be a data engineer and a data scientist, a machine learning engineer, uh, or I might realize that certain features are incredibly valuable for my use case. How do I make sure that you can just continue from where I left off and reuse those same features for your use case that might be six months later, but like almost identical? So we've talked about these four pillars, engineering-driven, customer-driven, data-driven, design-driven. No, so, so just to summarize, so at Slingshot, we started by going with an engineering-heavy approach solving problems because we were trying to go off intuition and didn't really have any customer data or real data to go off of. And we started by trying to build platforms. Yeah, I think I think we started with an overly engineering-driven approach, perhaps even, uh, where we knew what every company was building. We knew what the ML platform was looking like at so very many different companies. And we're like, let's just build that. Let's see what's technically feasible. And we know there's a lot of engineering work that's just so repetitive that every company has to do. Let's just build that and make it available to everyone. That was a good first step. Uh, but then, you know, getting customers, you see that the kinds of things that engineers are building aren't necessarily exactly what solves the problem for the underlying end user. And the end user, a lot of the reason for that is that the end user doesn't necessarily know what it is that they want. And so now I think as we make each decision, we have to think in all four of these camps, we have to think like, what would be the design-driven approach? What would be first principles? And very often, I think we will start a design. We have design documents. It's like a core central part of how we build. And we might start a design document and not finish it for months because we say, yeah, this needs to be built in a design-driven way, but we don't know the design. And so really, we're just collecting evidence. We will go off of customer-driven feedback. You know, if a customer is saying this, maybe that is a good reason to believe it's a good thing to build because customers, you know, very well might 
at least know it's valuable to them. And increasingly, we, we can collect data. We're still early, you know, in terms of how much data can we use to drive our decisions. And because we're in such a fast moving industry with paradigm changes, data isn't necessarily enough. It's helpful. But I think we, we have to be careful and thoughtful about the pitfalls too, which means if we are making a decision and we know this is engineering driven, at least we can be honest with ourselves that we know that it's engineering driven, which means it may bias us against paradigm shifts. It may bias us to do things that seem cool. It may bias us to work on issues that aren't actually unlocking crazy value for users. And similarly, if we're building things in a customer-driven way, it might not be the right design. And that might be okay because we might build it first and throw it away and build something else. But at the end of the day, being design-driven, I think, isn't a replacement for any of the rest. Being design-driven doesn't mean that everything you build is designed correctly. But I think it means in the long run, we want to err towards design, right? We want the end state of our product, quote-unquote, to be design-driven, and we want all of our engineering-driven, customer-driven, data-driven development to lend its hand towards building the right design for the product. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.